Don't pay retail for your diamond engagement ring or gift. Come to CleanOrigin.com. Founded by a leading family in the diamond industry for more than a century, we're experts in lab-grown diamonds because that's all we do. Clean Origin, the only diamond jewelers who give you a 100-day, no-questions-asked return on your purchase. Head to CleanOrigin.com or one of our retail stores and mention code RADIO10 for 10% off your purchase. That's CleanOrigin.com, code RADIO10. Today's topic may sound like something you would see in a sci-fi movie. We're talking about dead zones. And no, it has nothing to do with zombies, but these dead zones can be very harmful, even deadly to aquatic life. Dr. Tracy Fanara is a scientist and engineer who has been studying these and other types of phenomena to help educate the public and work to change our practices that contribute to them. Today, we'll be focusing on the Gulf of Mexico, but these events can occur in water bodies across the globe where conditions are right or wrong for that matter. Tracy, thank you for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Thank you so much for having me. This is this is really exciting. Well, you know, let me just start right off the bat and say I'm a huge fan of yours. She's awesome. If you don't know Dr. Tracy Fanara, you're going to get to know her over the course of this podcast. She's just simply one of the best in the business in terms of being a scientist and engineer and a science communicator as well. And for those of you that follow what I do, that's very important. I got to start right out of the gate with how did you get into science and engineering? What was the spark? Was it something when you were a kid or something along the way? Yeah, you know, I always had a curiosity for uh, developing things that didn't exist in the world. So in, I started winning invention conventions. Today, they call them science fairs when I was really little. But it was really in fourth grade when a teacher told us that there was a hazardous waste site down the street from us where industries had dumped toxic waste into canal ways and that was leaching into the groundwater and the soils. People started building houses in schools and there were cancer clusters and birth defects. And that's when I realized everything in this world is connected. What we put into the environment eventually comes back to affect us. And that incident was Love Canal. It started the EPA Superfund program and my understanding of how the world works. And, and that kind of snowballed. And then when I learned that unsafe drinking water was one of the world's leading killer among children worldwide, that's when I just knew I had to do something, whether it was paid for it or not. And that's really when you know what your passion is. And let me give you a little bit of Tracy's background, and I'm going to start with her only flaw. She has three degrees from the University of Florida, um, and she has a BSME and PhD in environmental civil engineering. Of course, I have three degrees from Florida State, so you would understand why I would say that. But uh, no, you're in Georgia. No, and yeah, triple null degree wise and actually a professor at the University of Georgia. So you can see why in jest I kid with her about her first year of Florida degrees. But you heard her slip the go gators in there. Um, But in all seriousness, uh, BS, ME and PhD in environmental and civil engineering. Uh, She was selected as a presidential management fellow by the U.S. federal government. Uh, She's currently in a role as a coastal modeling manager for NOAA. Uh, I I suspect we'll touch on that a little bit where we're sticking really to her, the work that she's done on dead zones today. Uh, She's managed the environmental health research program at Moat Marine Laboratory, where she designed and developed models, tools, and programs to protect wildlife and water quality. And I didn't really know this. She's taken on projects from lead contamination at military sites to designing an aquaponic system for wastewater treatment in space. So, look, she not only is good at what she does in sort of the broadcast uh, communication and public outreach, she's a brilliant scientist and engineer. 
And that's important to understand because when you follow Dr. Fanara and her social media, um, she's what I often call uh, the sort of, you know, probably the prototype of what you don't think a scientist is, someone that can communicate, she's engaged, she's active. We've got to break down these stereotypes of what we think scientists and engineers are. And I think Dr. Fanara does an outstanding job with that. So let's let's talk a little bit about your background here. And I, you know, shout out to the, the Weather Geeks production team because they've dug up some really interesting notes on, on your career. Um, you're an accomplished scientist. You've also appeared on the Weather Channel and various. In fact, I think we're on a program together right now called Weird Earth. Um, we are. Tell us about uh, other sort of efforts that you've done in that regard. I know you do some things on the Weather Channel, but tell us about your start in sort of the more public forum of science and engineering before we dig into some of the more science aspects. Yeah, you know, it really goes back to grad school. I started seeing my friends throw trash out their car windows and and they didn't even think twice about it. I was like, where do you think that goes? And but like 90% of the time they didn't know where it went and 10% of the time they thought it went to a wastewater treatment plant kind of like out of sight, out of mind, when every single drop of rainfall in the state of Florida brings everything to our natural water bodies. And I realized that upon telling them that they started holding on to their trash. I'm like, there's something to this. There's something to this whole education thing. So for my uh, dissertation, I was working on, it's called low impact development retrofit. So basically sustainable design uh, of an urban community to make it look like nothing is built on the land hydrologically to reduce algae blooms and dead zones and things like that. And, and so I did a video about it called Inspector Planet episode one. It was my first time ever on camera. And that's the video that Mythbusters saw when they picked me up for, for their show. And then from there, I started doing more and more things. I hosted a kid's show. Um, I was on, I, I'm on What on Earth on Science Channel, Weird Earth, uh, Fox's Awesome Planet, CBS Mission Unstoppable, just a bunch of, of little things. But the one thing that that I always keep consistent is I never quit my day job. You know, it's so important that real scientists are doing things in the media, you know, because so many times we get these people that, are, that have been so detached from science, communicating science. And that's great. I, it's awesome that so many people are communicating science, but it's so important that the people that are really in it are communicating their science as well. Yeah, I'm, I'm really glad you said that, because that's something that I tell young uh, scholars that I mentor as well. Um, Dr. Warren Washington is a mentor of mine, told me a long time ago, he said, make sure you establish your credibility as a scientist first, um, because you're going to have a lot of people coming at you to talk on camera or speak or do things you can speak well and blah, blah, blah. But your your credibility just goes way up when you're actually a practicing scientist. And so that's one of the things I really respect about what you do. Um, What is your primary sort of day job? You mentioned your day job. Now, talk a little bit about what your day job is now. So I was a research scientist at Marine Laboratory, mostly focused on Florida Red Tide and technology development to um, not only alert the public of harmful algae blooms, but also uh, design systems that reduce nutrients coming into our coastal waters. And I realized after, you know, 70 years of Florida red tide research, which is a harmful species of algae in the Gulf of Mexico, 2018 caused mass wildlife fatalities, economic disaster. It it was just awful. Um, And I realized that we didn't have the answers that we needed. And the reason for that is because 70 years of research, it was it was monitoring. It was taking samples. 
And with my background in modeling, I kept on pushing, you know, guys, these are earth systems. We have Saharan dust coming over from Africa that are playing a role. We have hurricanes. We have the Florida loop current. We have 40% of the United States draining into the Gulf of Mexico and causing this dead zone, like we're going to talk about. Um, and then nutrients, some scientists think, contribute to Florida red tide. These are earth systems. And unless we understand that in the entire phytoplankton community, we're not going to have these answers. So when I had the opportunity to go to uh, the National Ocean Service over at NOAA to manage coastal modeling efforts, I, I had to take it because it was, I loved my job at Moat, but this was this was the the right thing to do to make a difference in the world from my perspective. Yeah. And I, I think I remember along the time that you took that job and I was so excited. I asked your advice. <laughs> yeah. So, so excited to see that you, you, we need really good people. You know, I spent a, a good part of my career at NASA and we, we need people exactly like you within our federal agencies leading. And so I was really excited to see that you had that opportunity. Let's get the dead zones. First of all, 101 for the Weather Geeks listeners. What are they and why do we care about them? So dead zones are areas that have very low to no oxygen. And the reason why we care about them is because a lot of people don't realize that things underwater actually do uptake oxygen. They just have different, different tools in which to uptake oxygen from the water. And so when we have these dead zones, animals coming through or organisms that are sessile or attached right there will, will die. And these dead zones happen all over the world. And the reasons that they happen are uh, many, but here in the Gulf of Mexico, a big reason for that is the amount of nutrients coming from the Mississippi Atchafalaya watershed. A lot of people don't realize that 40% of the United States drains into one area and, and impacts those people on the coastline, you know, and, and the real struggle is how do you get, how do you get a farmer in Iowa to care about a shellfish farmer in Louisiana. And that's, that's a, you know, that's kind of the conclusion of everything that I stated right in the beginning, but, but yeah, so we have, we have 70% of the nutrients that are coming into this watershed from agriculture. Um, and it comes into the Gulf of Mexico uh, a lot because we've changed the hydrology of the land and really redirected these flows into one area. We have a ton of fresh water coming down. And fresh water sits on top of salt water, doesn't allow mixing. But in on top of that, all that nutrients can cause algae blooms that block out sunlight and prevent photosynthesis. And then the decomposition of those algae blooms or the death of those algae blooms uptakes oxygen in the process, further lowering the amount of oxygen in that area. And then you have something called the dead zone or a hypoxic event. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with BiteClear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. BiteClear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. And I'm talking with the awesome Dr. Tracy Fanara. Uh, she, again, 
if you, for, for Tracy, give people, I'm, I'm going to ask you again at the end of the podcast, give people some of the places they can follow you on social media. They can follow me at Inspector Planet on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn. Um, I think that that's, that's about it that I'm really, you know, active or inspectorplanet.com. Yeah, please go and follow her. You will not regret it. She's just a very interesting follower. Let's get back to these dead zones that you were talking about. And you used a very technical term there uh, that really described the, the, uh, these events. Do you as scientists that work in this area, are they getting worse, these dead zones? Are we seeing more frequent ones, more intense ones? And if so, why? Absolutely. We're seeing we're seeing more frequent and intense dead zones. And that's because our growing population, our changing landscape, uh, bringing water from the ground that used to percolate to the ground to the surface, bringing all that nutrients into areas, causing algae blooms. But also with climate change, we are getting more and more cyanobacteria blooms. And on top of that, when we are warming up the water, it's less likely to uptake oxygen. So it's just like this domino effect of change that's happening um, from everything from our everyday activities all the way to global changes. So so, yes, we are we are seeing more frequent and intense hypoxic events worldwide. And that, that was my sense. Shout out to Dr. Deepak Mitra at the University of Georgia. He and some of uh, his students and some that I actually know, too, recently launched a little CubeSat or SmallSat to the uh, International Space Station. And I think they are going to be doing some ocean color work as well. Uh, and I know Deepak thinks about uh, some of these uh, that things. He actually has an, an app out there. I'm giving him a little plug called Sino Tracker, where they sort of a crowdsource app where people can sort of identify these blooms in their local waters and so forth. But I want to kind of go global here rather than local. Where are some other notorious places besides the Gulf of Mexico that we see these? Oh, gosh. Well, I know that we see them on the coast, the west coast of Florida a lot. And that's due to Florida red tide blooms. Mm-hmm. You know, we get high amount of algae coming in. And this is a little bit different because these blooms start offshore at the ocean bottom. They're really slow growers. They are competed closer to shore, but they can eat basically anything. So they start at the ocean bottom, come up by upwelling, move on shore with currents. And those currents bring these high populations in. Stormwater runoff feeds them. They grow like crazy. They get into physical boundaries like we're seeing right now in Tampa Bay. And and they can cause hypoxic events by not only blocking out the sunlight, but also the amount of fish that they kill and wildlife that they kill. All of that decaying organic matter uptakes oxygen in the process. And we get patchy dead zones uh, in many, many locations throughout the West Coast of Florida. Uh, But these do happen worldwide. We've seen them in the Atlantic. We've seen them over in California. We see them uh, over in Europe. We see them everywhere. Yeah. So they really are a global phenomena. Something you said really is I'm a meteorologist and this is weather geek. Something you said really triggered a thought, which is, you know, there could be situations where we have these big flooding events in the heartland. Uh, I mean, these big rain events, these big mesoscale convective systems and mesoscale convective complexes that we talk about on places like the Weather Channel. And all of that rain up in the in Iowa, as you mentioned, in the heartland, the breadbasket region of the, our nation, that eventually finds its way into a watershed and it comes downstream and into the Gulf of Mexico. So 
big storms, big rain events in our heartland, they actually have a connection to these dead zones, you're saying? Oh, absolutely. Storm pollution wouldn't be a problem if it wasn't for water, but we'd have a pretty hard time living on this earth if it wasn't water. Uh, but especially with climate change, more uh, more rainfall predicted in locations that are already wet, all of that uh, will contribute to that worsening of these dead zones. But you're exactly right. Everything in this world is connected. And, and these storms definitely bring all that runoff to our coastal water bodies. I mean, there are things that we can do, though. You know, you're, we're talking about rainfall. We're talking about runoff and all that nutrients coming off our land. There are low impact development strategies that we can implement that actually uptake some of these nutrients, especially for freshwater systems. Phosphorus is a lot easier to uptake than nitrogen is. But there are still LID, low impact development tools that we can implement at farms, at in urban developments, in residential developments, right at your own home that reduce your impact to our stormwater quality and our what, what are some of the things for the listeners, including me, uh, what are some things I can do in my own home to help? It's a great question. I'm so glad you asked. So <laughs> right now, most likely it rains. The rain falls on your roof. It goes down a, a, a gutter onto your driveway and then down a storm sewer right into a natural water body. The best thing that you can do, and this is what my research found, is that disconnecting your impervious surface or the area that water cannot penetrate is the most effective strategy to restore your hydrology. And so if you take that water that falls on your on your roof, down your gutter and put it into something called a rain barrel, which actually this computer right now is on top of a rain barrel that I haven't installed yet, uh, into a rain barrel where it has a time release into say a rain garden or an infiltration trench, something that allows that percolation of that water that used to go run off really fast at lower water quality, high velocities causing erosion, algae blooms, poor water quality, and actually restore your groundwater. Now here in Florida, it's it's even a bigger problem than just algae blooms and dead zones. We also are living on a coral reef. We have limestone all underneath us. So, so that limestone has caves and caverns over time that have developed from water movement. And the more water that we're taking from the ground and putting on top of the ground, on top of the growing population and taking water for water use from the ground, um, that reduces that water table and those caves and caverns when left empty, boom, sinkholes. And we're seeing more and more of them as well. So retrofit your own home. It's, it's beautiful too, using native plant species and, and building these gardens. It's a great hobby on top of that. It's, it just makes your house look better. <sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and I'm speaking to Dr. Tracy Fanara, who is an expert on things related to 
dead zones and red tides and coastal management and so forth. She also is a uh, coastal modeling manager at NOAA, so serving our nation as well. And thank you for that service in addition to the brilliance that you bring to the science and broader communities as well. Um, as you think about what you do in this area of research, this area of science and engineering, what worries you the most? I mean, what, what you know, the, the proverbial, what keeps you up at night about what we're dealing with in this, in this regard? Oh, gosh, that is such a big question for me. Because some nights it's, it's how do we clean up the nuclear waste from the Manhattan Project that are impacting my friends? You know, I have seven friends from high school in their 30s with cancer. You know, like I, it, that has kept me up a lot recently um, because the more and more I learn and, and it's, it's really difficult to clean up, but also with our, with our changing climate and, and it's happening so fast, it's happening so fast. How do we get people on board? How do we, you know, we've done such a great job in society of, in the United States of kind of hiding our impacts from us. You know, we put our trash down at the end of the road. We flush our toilets. We never see our waste. We never see it. It just goes away. It just disappears. And so we don't understand the implications of our actions. We don't understand that that it's all piling up, that we're running out of room, that we're causing pollution and we're causing long term impacts to our public health, our economy. And what we do now, we're eventually going to have to pay for. And so so what what is a huge challenge and what I'm constantly thinking about, and that's why I do so many of these uh, TV shows and things like that, is how do we educate the public? How do we bring people together? How do we combat all of the divides that exist right now to just be like, guys, this is humanity. We're one species. We're one species. And as of right now, we have no other planet. <laughs> Not no plan, planet. no plan B planet, right? No, no planet B, yeah. as, as many have seen. Yes. And so yeah, yeah, that's right. And so that's just the message, you know, we can debate and tinker and, and so forth. But, you know, you know, if we we screw up our house, we can always go buy another one or rent another one. You can't rent another planet or buy another planet. So, yeah, you know, one thing you mentioned earlier, I guess, you know, the Tampa Bay area or the Gulf is dealing with a red tide or just coming off of one after Hurricane Elsa and so forth. Uh, but one of my producers did want me to ask you, because I guess last year we ended up with the third smallest Gulf dead zone on yeah. record. And that was a reversal from other earlier prediction predictions. And the producer wanted me to ask what, what happened? Was that an anomaly or did some conditions change meteorologically, oceanographically, so forth? I'm so glad you asked that because I actually came on Weather Channel last year to talk about that. So those those data are taken from from research trips from satellite imagery as well but but at the time that the samples were taken that year it had followed a hurricane event that mixed up the waters and there really wasn't enough time in between the data collection and the hurricane for that dead zone to reestablish so so my hypothesis is that that's that's what happened it's not that we had less rainfall because we didn't it's not that we all of a sudden did the right things because that's not the case. Um, but hurricane events, storm events do mix up the water column and can reoxygenate the water. And, you know, a lot of people, I mean, of course, hurricanes can be devastating, absolutely devastating. But if you're going to look at the bright side, 
there are some good things that hurricanes do and, and mixing dead zones is one of those things. Yeah, no, I, you know, hurricanes are deadly and they, but I often talk about from a meteorological or climate perspective, they actually do serve a role. Um, just a quick little hurricane 101 here in global circulation 101. The reason we have the tropics in the equator and it's warm and we have the really cold Arctic region is that the earth uh, disproportionately receives most of its heat and energy at the equator or in the tropics. But the planet is always trying to put itself on a, what I call a heat diet is trying to get rid of that excess heat in its midsection and move it to the poles. Hurricanes are one of the mechanisms that do that, uh, believe it or not. And you also just noted that they can provide mixing. You mentioned upwelling earlier and that, you know, can you explain this idea? Because you mentioned churning up a mixing of water, but you also in an answer earlier mentioned upwelling. And I wanted to make sure I circle back to that so that our listeners understand what exactly upwelling is, because, you know, the way I think you and I know that there's this really deep cold water and somehow it often can make its way to the surface. You'll often see it yeah. in the trail after hurricanes, but the, you mentioned upwelling. Give us a 101 on upwelling. Yeah. So when we have, for example, a lot of wind on the surface water and it's deep displacing that surface water, those bottom waters can come to the top. There are other phenomena that make this situation happen. But when these bottom waters do are allowed to come to the top and bring that colder nutrient rich water to the surface, that's when things like uh, Florida red tide can occur. Um, and that's when we get a lot of nutrients on the surface, basically fertilizing photosynthetic organisms that are on the surface. And, and for example, like Florida red tide and for productivity all over the world, this can cause spikes in productivity. In fact, I was on Nat Geo uh, this week talking about an anomaly shark bite situation in 2017 on the east coast of Florida. And doing the research, Hurricane Irma came through, caused an upwelling event, and then we saw a spike in productivity. Like it was, it was, I've never seen something so clear I, it, with science. And I did this in three days. Like it was like the, the coolest thing ever. So, so for, for decades, just this productivity was, was pretty much level. And then you saw in October of 2017, it just shot up like 200 fold and came back down afterwards. So basically what happened is an upwelling event brought that nutrients to the surface. Production was able to happen. Phytoplankton grew like crazy, brought in bait fish. Those bait fish then brought in some sharks. And so we had an increased number in sharks in that area during that time because of this chain of events. And that's, I mean, it's just another great example of how everything in this world is connected and how earth systems all intertwine. Yeah, exactly. And just what reminds me, although we've been talking about the Gulf of Mexico and large water bodies, um, these things can happen sort of local water bodies to streams and ponds and lakes. Is that, is that right? Oh, yeah. So we get mixing, uh, and especially in places that have uh, season change uh, twice a year, uh, some places even more, some places less. But yeah, we get this with freshwater as well. Yeah. So we can deal with these blooms and so forth and, and run off into a fertilizer into those bodies as well. Oh, yeah. 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 And that's where that home retrofit comes in, because a lot of that nutrients coming in from places that don't have a lot of farmland is from our home and the fertilizer oh. that we were putting on our lawn. You know, grass is the leading the leading agriculture crop worldwide produces nothing. Really think about that and our food shortages worldwide. 
Wow. That's you really, you really put that in, in a really good context because we probably, and you know, interestingly on a previous episode of weather geeks, we had uh, someone uh, talking about the drought in the West and water rights and so forth. And he also made a significant point that one of the biggest ways to manage the water supply issue in the West is just manage our use of lawns and think about, you know, just the use and irrigation of, of grass and golf courses and things like that. And from this perspective, I think I see the same connection that you're making as well. Now, running out of time, I want to use this last little bit of the podcast to sort of probe you as a scientist here. What are some of the tools that you, I know you're, you, you know, for your science, but also some of the other things you do, you, you get out there in the midst of the, of your, your research question. So what are some of the tools that you use approaches, methodologies? Are you diving? Are you using satellite data? Are you sticking things into the water? All of the above. Yeah. So, so when I was at Mount Marine Laboratory, I was mostly diving, sticking things in the water, going out and building things doing a lot of hands-on, but now at NOS, I'm doing more management of our, of our coastal models. So, so using satellite data, understanding data assimilation, which, which models use to, to make a better fit. So basically we have all of this data from satellites in the water, from gliders, from sensors, all of it. And, and historically we've just used that for local information. But now with our models, not only do we have these algorithms that we know to be true about physics, but there's also a lot of things that we don't know about how the world works and the models can't cover. So using these data points, these actual real-time monitoring data points into our models kind of correct for all that stuff that we don't know. Um, so, so understanding you know, how we can get data from one place to another where we store it uh, how we get it to the public, how we answer the questions for the public and protect the public lives and livelihoods through answering these big questions through these integrated modeling systems. Yeah, that's it's such an important, you know, again, you know, Tracy's an example of what I call an end to end scientist. She's, she, she knows how to do the science. She knows how to collect the data. She knows how to interpret the data, publish it and all that type of thing. But now she's sort of in a different part of her science end to end where she's sort of working with our um, the key ocean agency for our government system, thinking about policy and so forth. So she's truly an end to end scientist and kudos to whomever at NOAA had the end that first sight to sort of reach out to her because she's exactly, exactly the type of scientists we need at a place like NOAA. So uh, with that, let's give uh, the listeners uh, uh, your credentials one more time in terms of where they can find you on social media as we draw to a close. Yes, you can find me at Inspector Planet. Just one word. It's it's Captain Planet and Inspector Gadget together, sustainability and innovation. Get it? Yeah, I don't know. Um, <laughs> so you can find me on Twitter, <laughs> Facebook, Instagram, uh, so, so please reach out, uh, inspectorplanet.com if you want to be part of the planet posse and, and join our mission to, to kind of alert the public of environmental hazards and figure out what's going on. You could sign up on our list. And before we get out of here, it's that time of the week where we recognize our geek of the week. We like to highlight a scientist, superstar, a great geologist, or a weather weenie at the end of every podcast. This episode's geek of the week is Garrett Black. Garrett is an airborne reconnaissance weather officer, as you may more commonly know, a hurricane hunter. 
Wow. Yeah, this he flies through hurricanes. He absolutely loves hurricanes, but his fellow colleagues joke that he may be moonlighting, chasing tornadoes in Kansas during the offseason. His most memorable flight was flying through Hurricane Irma, which you heard Tracy mention, which we know is one of the most powerful hurricanes on record at its peak intensity. Thank you all for what you do, especially you, Garrett. And, you know, I'm glad you're doing it because I don't think that I could do that as much as I love hurricanes. To follow him uh, and his amazing work the Hurricane Hunters are doing, check out at gblack22wx on Twitter. And I think you look to be a of the week or know someone that should, be sure to follow our social media pages. Tracy Fanara, Dr. Tracy Fanara, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. It was an honor. You're, you are my favorite scientist. I say that all the time. So oh, that, I'm just so honored to be here. That's that's really cool that you say that. But the feelings, feelings mutual. She's someone that I follow very closely and you know, honored that you you uh, we've had a chance to sort of reach out professionally and sort of sort of follow each other's career. So uh, we'll continue to watch. And thank you all for listening. See you next time on Weather Geeks. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader, like that car riding your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader.